Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Guys, Victoria's competing with Queensland now in Australia to be our Florida. It is shutting shit down. The second wave of COVID-19 is coming back around if you're in the United States. It's just keep on keeping on. It's just one entire tsunami of this thing hitting your country. So... I hope you're all staying safe and your family is staying safe and you're practicing all the right precautions and taking care of each other. But here in Sydney, things are starting to open up cautiously, cautiously. People are teetering and fearing that situation in Victoria is going to cross the border and come into Sydney. So what do you need to do? You need to get some shit catered. You need to get some shit catered by bellacatering.com.au. The family team over there are just incredible. And why? cook for your own family when they can do it. Thanks to Bella Catering. Thanks for listening. Let's get into the show. That was me. He did write a court story. I rewrote it. What? Girls do not do rewrites. Why not? That's simply how we do things here. We have rules, protocol. Those rules are dumb. If copy's good, it's good. Young lady, you might not want to make waves. Unless we have doubts about our decision to hire you. But you just said my rewrite hit the bullseye. That was your word. Bullseye. Why is everyone standing around here like a bunch of carnies? Huh? Back to work. You too, dear. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is a former national and foreign journalist and the creator of Good Girls Revolt, which in the pilot episode has the coolest homage to all the president's men. And she joins me once again. She's a writer, a producer. You've probably seen a stack of the stuff that she's written and executive produced over the years, including Narcos. She's the awesome and insightful and real all the president's men super fan uh, that I think periodically I need to sprinkle through this show because her love for this movie is probably able to outshine mine and some of those obsessive guests that have been on the show so far. Danny Calvo, welcome back to All the President's Minutes. Well, thanks for having me. Since the last time we spoke, not much has happened. <laughs> <laughs> so quaint to think that there were just wildfires raging through Australia 
in yeah. January. Yeah, you know, whatever it is, five million hectares burned, a million animals dead. I can't even remember the numbers now. Uh, little pandemic. Uh, yeah, it's been a, a peaceful protests that are being um, co-opted by civil war. Yeah, a long, a long, and much needed civil war. <laughs> Some say, uh, and we were talking about the comparisons of our countries now, like in different seasons. And now you're obviously you're you're based in um, on the west coast in LA, and it's fire season coming for you. So. Uh, you've just told me just before we started recording, which is another scary prospect because the only other place I feel like I th- hear about in the world that has as bad of fires as Australia is LA. Yeah, no, the hits keep coming. 2020 is, <laughs> yeah, it's horrible. I, it, it's, a, it's a fiction movie. I think I think in 2021 when everyone, you know, if, it's, if the world still exists and people get to have like a New Year's Eve, it, the slogan for 2021 is just enough. We're good this year. We're done. Just nothing. We want absolutely nothing of note to happen this year. If everyone could just yeah. chill right out and look, not our protesters because they need to, you know, they've, they've got a, they've got a moment uh, right now to to really affect some change, and we're seeing some great change both locally and internationally. So I, you know, pe- people who activists they need to keep going and we need to keep supporting, but man, no pandemics, no fires that like burn half a country, you know, um, we, we, we'd be good with that. Yeah, I totally agree. So how many times have you watched all the president's men since the last time I spoke to you? Two. Two. (laughs) And I watched you in the kitchen while my husband was cooking dinner and we just kept geeking it. I mean, he's not as much of a fan as I am. He loves it, but no one has the level of fanaticism that I do. And like, I'm just sitting on the bench in the kitchen watching it. And I keep saying things like, oh my God, this is the best scene. <laughs> but he's a former journalist. So I had him watch my minute just to, just to hear what he thought too. And we had a fun conversation about it. He, Look, the movie, it's fucking perfect. It doesn't age. It holds the test of time. It is, as another friend of mine said, who sent me a screenshot of when he was watching it a couple of months ago, um, he said it is a pilot light for journalists. Yeah. And it really, I think that's a beautiful way to put it. That is a beautiful sentiment. Yeah. And it feels like, it feels like it's more than a pilot light for journalists. It's just a pilot light for people who like any writer who needs to work hard. Like to, to get what they're trying to do. Like you need, no, you need to do, you need to work harder. You need to, you know, rest up for 15 minutes and get your ass back in gear. Like it's not, it's not just stopping. It's not, the train doesn't stop and everything's okay. Like it's, you have to keep working um, to make things happen. I, I, I love it for that. And I love how you said it's ageless because it is. It's just like, it, it's just this little, that, I think that's the great relief when you watch an old, an older movie, a classic. Cause it's like, this is my little slice of time and it's just, it's perfect. And it's, it's untouchable. Disney plus isn't going to blur out someone's hair or something like that. You know, I've got my physical media copy. They're going to pry it from my cold dead hands. This little perfect slice of, you know, um, of 1975, 76 when it was released. It's true. And even it's funny, no matter when I watch it, I overlay of course, whatever, I'm an egomaniac American in LA. I overlay what's happening in my life. 
you know, when I'm watching it and see different things. And last time we spoke, I, I was talking about how right after me too sort of broke and I watched it, um, I felt like, Oh yeah, the emotional resonance of the film only starts when, when chicks walk on screen, enter stage left, you know, and then you get how scared these people were because before that it was just, let's get the win, let's get the story. And then it was like, Oh no, there are families at stake, lives at stake, marriages, you know? And so this time watching it, well, I watched it, I think in March, right? Cause my birthday, I watch it on my birthday every year, totally normal behavior. <laughs> and then I watched it last night in the kitchen and I was thinking of the black lives matter movement now and how, how revolutionary it is and how you cannot help but root for people who have the guts and the organization to stand up to power structures. They're like, it's not okay. I see you for who you are and calling them out on it. And it's so inspiring. Since the last time we spoke, um, I had a conversation with a, a really terrific Australian investigative journalist, Jess Hill, who just wrote a book called She Made Me Do It, which is about domestic violence in Australia. She immersed herself in the system and sort of unpacked locally a lot of the things that the systemic failures of the government and, you know, and the child court of Australia and 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 women who are trapped and sort of tried to dispel a lot of the, what she called, like, dispel the learned lies. And so talking yeah. to her when the when this movement had its resurgence and its timely resurgence, um, with the with the really awful death of George Floyd, um, I just kept thinking about that. The learned lies. It just kept thinking yeah. over and over again. And one of the things she also told me, Dana, which I think you would like, is she she uh, and this is from your journalistic background. She went on a journalistic conference, and a keynote speaker was Bob Woodward, and she had like you an international. Uh, a foreign experience and she'd been to the Middle East and things like that. And she said that Bob Woodward was telling these journalists in the room, you know, if you guys don't get your story, you just go knock on that door, you know, any time of the day or night, just knock on that door. And some of the things he said just felt really outdated. And she yeah. went over to some of her friends who were like, you know, uh, foreign correspondents who'd worked in places like Pakistan and 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 uh, in the Middle East and and in different war-torn countries, and and going. So, do you think if you just you know went to someone's house in the middle of the night and knocked on their door, that would be okay? Uh, she's like, it, it's like a quainter, much more civilized, domesticized approach that doesn't count for like what the current state of the world is. And she goes, I felt a bit sad that 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 he that the sort of, I don't know, that like that the way that this movie vibrates and the way that they were telling this story at the time was they were fearing for their lives and it was an abstract thing. And now the overlay, when I've rewatched this so many times for this show and so many times for this episode, I just keep thinking about him then in that conference with Jess Hill and the concept that like journalists are getting shot with pepper bullets on live television and getting bashed by police on live television. I'm like, well, yeah, you can't just go knock on someone's door and get a nice interview in 2020, <laughs> as you may have been able to do in 1972, very politely in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Well, I mean, even when I was reporting in Latin America, you actually, there were, I had to come at it in a different way than, than the, the white male privilege of Bob Woodward. I, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't meet someone 
at two, for instance, I couldn't meet at 2 a.m. in an underground parking lot. No way. No way, right? I'm either accused of like fucking the guy or, you know, prostitute or whatever. And, you know, one of the ways I found around that was talking to their wives, talking to their mistresses, talking to former cops, talking to people who had become sober. What I, what I had to do as a female reporter in those situations was talk to disenfranchised people who were now on the other side. Yes. Because um, to go right into that is, that's um, not going to be as easy. No. And, and it's also, it is, it is like brazenly life-threatening. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. for sure, I'm going to go into an underground car park at 2 a.m. That sounds like a totally, where no one's there, oh, yeah, that's a totally reasonable thing it's not exactly ripe to be kidnapped <laughs> you know not ripe where there's no cameras oh yeah it's not ripe to be kidnapped or to be taken away or to be beaten up or, or anything You'd be hurt in any manner of ways insane but let's take a uh, a brief island uh back to mr pakula's 1976 masterpiece let's go back into the office of ben bradley with an opening frame for some reason has a hard hat on the wall, which my last person I spoke to is a great filmmaker, Alex Ross Perry. And he was like obsessed with the hard hat, um, in <laughs> our final seconds. And it's pointed me out to it now, even more so than I've already sort of wondered what that hard hat was. Um, and I think from the post, you see people wearing hard hats when they go down to the presses. So that's all I can assume is that he actually had a hard hat when he went down to the press. Uh, but let's kick off this now, the 61st minute, 60 whole episodes since the last time we spoke. And before we, we end today's episode, I think you're going to have to come back for the 121st episode, which will be 17 minutes before the end. So I'm going to just see if I can find out what that episode is uh, in our conversation because, you know, every 60-odd episodes, the way that they're flying out four episodes a week, I'll be talking to you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, and who knows what will we have on Planet Earth. What's that saying? What fresh hell... <laughs> so, what fresh hell has emerged on us from there? But let's watch this beautiful minute with Jason Robards in his Academy Award-winning performance. And uh, and let's just, just relish this guy talking. There's just no one whose voice is as good. Um, it makes me feel good, just like it makes you feel good. And I hope that listeners to this show, when you listen along, are enjoying Mr. Robards as Mr. Ben Bradley. Let's take a look and you guys can listen along and we'll come back and talk about it. The money's the key to whatever this is. Says who? Deep Throat. Who? Oh, that's uh, Woodward's uh, garage freak, his source and the executive. Garage freak? Jesus, what kind of a crazy fucking story is this? What did you say? <sighs> He's on deep background. I call him Deep Throat. Look, McGovern's dropped to nothing. Nixon's guaranteed the renomination. The Post is stuck with a story no one else wants. It'll sink the goddamn paper. Everyone says, get off it, Ben, and I come on very sage, and I say, uh, well, you'll see, you wait till this bottoms out. But the truth is, I can't figure out what we've got. What else are you working on? Well, we're after a list of creep employees. Where is it? It's classified. Well, how are you going to get it? We haven't had any luck yet. Get some. Anything else? So good. So it's, it's, <laughs> he's the greatest pep talker in the history of cinema. They're, they're yeah. Not- and 
It's great. He just got it to a T. He is the he um, he is the best editor. He's the in a good way. The father knows best. Best editor. You feel safe with him, but he's no bullshit. He's so smart. Um, before we get to my minute, because you've already covered it, do you remember when they were really psyched to show him an article earlier on in the movie? Yes. And looking at him with these puppy eyes, and he sits back, and he's like, you didn't get it. You don't have it. <laughs> it took him all five seconds. But anyway, let's talk about this minute. Yeah, uh, we, I mean, I'm happy to talk about a minute where in a pressed velvet suit with his feet up on the table and a red pen in his hand, he's just like, you don't have it. In like 30 seconds, you don't have it. All these hours of toiling and working and uh, no, you don't have it. Uh, I I also love here, there's something so cool and it's like a humanity in him where he's like, I come on all sage and I'm like, yeah, you wait till this thing bottoms out. But the truth is I don't know what we have. Like, and that uncertainty of like, I trust you guys, but I trust you to a point. If I see that the momentum is pointing you to a, a destination that looks like it's fruitful, then I'll just keep backing you. But if it's not, then I don't want to look like the idiot. So we got to get off this thing. And it's, well, it's I, well, sorry, you go, please. It's very rare, in my experience, it's very rare for an editor to share what the outward facing reaction for him is to a story or her. And what he's doing is a moment, as you said, of vulnerability and showing like, I'm getting a lot of heat in my very fancy gin and tonic circles for this. <laughs> and I'm a good face, but you kids better not let me down. The more typical question is, or the more typical conversation is, come on, let's have it. Let's beat the New York Times. Let's get this. Let's, and instead he's really sharing how he now is walking through the world of the Washington DC Literati, you know, literati because of these stories. And so it's so brilliant, again, like everything in this fucking movie, because <laughs> you thought that this story has implications for everyone, even Ben Bradley's dinner party set. Yes. Especially. <laughs> oh, it's like, it's like, Dave, sorry, what the fuck is this story? What did you say? And how it's just like, has he's just smiling? Like, oh, it's a, it's a joke. It's a, it's a garage. It's yeah. like, and he's looking at him like this isn't the, this isn't the time for your stupid joke. It, it, also, just from a technical standpoint, I love this scene so much because it is the most. It's like a, a reverberating, uh, series of cuts, like faster cuts than you've seen in almost the whole movie because the 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 shots and then the reaction shots and then the the dialogue coming back and forth is so important like it's there's such a cross section of it needs to go to balsam it goes to wood but it goes to bernstein like a woodward standing up and then it's back to bradley and bradley then does his like 10 seconds and then it goes bang 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 and he's like you know we haven't had any luck yet get some and then there's like three reaction shots and then they walk out of this room and it's just like whew. so it's you know, it's it's fired up. It's it's just excellent. It's don't you don't you think if it ever does a remake, they should just call it Garage Freak? <laughs> that's the twenty twenty garage. But that's the one interesting thing. Talking to a, a, a couple of folk, but I talked to an LA Times journalist, Javier Panza, and he was like, "It's that he sort of pointed out something that I hadn't really thought about, which is this kind of the the journalism movie that's about the journalist, and there's the journalism movie that's about the source." And so you feel like many 
people who may have had a crack at this story could, you know, and there's the terrible Liam Neeson, Mark Felt movie, which tries to do this very thing, but it's very terrible. Um, but it's like, you feel like it would flip it to whoever these sources are or to some of the sources. Like, you know, I feel like the, the Jane Alexander bookkeepers have got a, she's got three movies in her. Like if you were ever going to even touch this, this lore again, I think you've got to go to like, you've got to be like her. You got to have her working in the creep offices and seeing this stuff and then seeing the danger that it puts her in potentially like being the key source to this whole yeah. shebang. Like, I feel like that's a, that, that could be a great angle. Or if you do it like the Michael Mann's movie, The Insider, you had like the journalist side and the key source that like opens up the whole case. And it's like, arguably, is it Deep Throat? Is it some of these people who go on the line and, and go on the record from Crete, et cetera. Um, but yeah, that, that it's just a whole different approach, but I love, I love here being with the journos because it's, it's, it's funner. Well, and the other thing, um, it's funner. The other thing is that, um, you know, we never, by the way, we're never explained or told. Bob Woodward's only been at the paper nine months. When this, so he, he doesn't have the bedrock of credibility that, you know, Bernstein, who's, who they were going to fire the week before, but at least he's the devil they know. <laughs> so Woodward's still really the new guy, still really going through a little bit of hazing. But we never are told, like, where his source was from or we don't anything. He is the... He is mysterious even there in Bradley's office. Um, the other thing that strikes me about it is never in a newsroom in 2020 would an editor be able to call a source male or female after a porn star. <laughs> you know? um, so it's just that bodiness I sort of love. I mean, I know there's obviously a dark underbelly to it, but I love the bodiness and they're having fun with it. And also, this, I feel, is similar, although I haven't been in a newsroom in years, but I think it is, is that um, newspapers are like military organizations. There's a lot of hierarchy. And so if you'll notice in that scene, Bradley asks um, Balsam, I forget his character's name all of a sudden, I'm blanking on Howard, he asks him, what do they have? No, they're not. He's not talking directly to the reporters. And the reporters no. don't dare ask Bradley a direct question. They they answer when spoken to. Yes. So and, you just you get it. And and also it's like at this point in that sort of military hierarchy, it's like that's why he's such a good editor because he's protecting them and he's asking his editor who should have their back. What uh, what have they got here? Like, don't, don't even let them in the room with me if this isn't going to be a serious conversation, a serious dialogue, and have, like, seriously important things to say. Otherwise, we're just killing the story. It's over. Um, and when Howard says it's good, the garage freak is their source, I call him Deep Throat, he doesn't criticize Woodward and Bernstein. No. Bradley goes, what kind of fucking thing is this? He, <laughs> he, he presses down Howard because you're right. Howard's supposed to be in charge of them. Yes. And <laughs> even today... There was a, there was a crazy, I'm going to see if I can bring it up because it was absolutely ludicrous. So in Australia, um, thanks to Rupert Murdoch, his, uh, international footprint of, uh, of political dis disgraceful political discourse happens in papers, both local and abroad. Um, and there's only 18 hours ago, there was a post 
Uh, oh, sorry, there was a, a in the Australian. There's a paper called the Australian Locally, and it's our sort of conservative paper, and it's all the conservative commentators. There's never been a person of color, I don't think, anyone anywhere near the Australian, or has never picked it up, or <laughs> anyone who has got any yeah. sort of progressive views is never picking up the Australian for anything. Um, you know, uh, they've got actually a pretty good culture section. I must admit, the culture writers are very good, um, but. Someone wrote an opinion piece in Australia, a, a journalist by the name of Peter Gleeson saying, where's the real justice? And it was someone having an op-ed in an Australian paper about everything that's happening socially. And literally this sentence was written. This is 2020. The reality in this country and the US is that the greatest danger to Aboriginals and Negroes is themselves. Now, you would know. Who <laughs> You would know that, and this is a white guy, in Australia, calling an Indigenous person an Aboriginal, that's because of all the slurs and things associated with it. It's just not, it's just not the appropriate term to ever say Indigenous yeah. people or First Nations people of this country. But it's even more brazen and like disgraceful to say that word. And I look at this scene, and it's so funny how you say, you just watch this movie and you overlay what's happening in the world. I watch this scene and this editor and this editorial group have the accountability to go, if we are not going anywhere, this story ends. We're not going to be negligent. Like, this is what it is. And I've had a lot of, you know, journalists, friends and people like that respond to this story and just be like, how did someone write this? It go to an editor and then a senior editor and then get published in, a, in one of Australia's biggest newspapers how did an editor let this happen? Like it's irresponsible and gross yeah. and racist and it's crazy. And I just think about these guys and the thing that heartens me about these guys and makes me feel so like warm and fuzzy when I watch them is these guys don't let this shit go. Like they're not like he just, he redlined an entire, what they thought was a breaking story. Cause you don't have it and stick it in the back someplace. We don't know. We're not, we're not posting anything that's negligent. Um, at a time when we're going to be judged so harshly about what we're saying about our conservative, you know, power brokers. But I, I just was thinking about that in preparation. And sorry to derail the conversation to something contemporary again, but I just, that's what I find so comforting in this scene is that these guys wouldn't let that happen. And whereas now a whole bunch of journos that I know now are actively going, this deserves a formal complaint. I do not understand how an editor could have let this through. Well, something similar happened here two weeks ago at the New York Times, an op-ed. Oh, by yes, a yes. Yeah, a conservative lawmaker who said that they should basically open fire and protest. And, you know, many similar conversations. How in the world did this get through the sieve that is supposed to be an editing process? Yes. And and a couple of a couple of folks who've been on the show too, uh, Kyle Turner, even at, like who's written culture writing. He's like, oh, the New York Times editorial process is one of the most intensive and joyful things as a writer I've ever gone through. He's like, it goes <laughs> through edit after edit after edit, and you get in their style, and and then it's finally published. And he's like, and I kept thinking about that too, and then that time story broke. Um, but it was just like. I don't know how this goes through six hands and people are like, yeah, it's fine. Like this, yeah. this isn't problematic. This is not going to have any kind of reaction. I mean, you could say some, you know, really gross and racist things, but just without being directly gross and racist in the way that he's saying it, it could have been just as equally as, as offending as an article to, to have that sentiment, but to then use the racist words that he's trying to describe, it's just like, come on. 
It's just like, this is craziness. All right, let's get back to Jason Robards' face because there's just nothing like it in the in the world. That uh, And I love his desk. I love his mess. I love his jar of 25,000 pencils that is on his desk as well. I, I love, love <laughs> I love that he knows or was instructed. I'm sure it was just Jason. That I'm going to call him Jason even though I've never met him. Um, but he picks up the the pen or pencil to rat-a-tat and emphasize his point. Yes. I've done all she wrote. And he asks a question that I think may be one of the most asked questions in newsrooms, which is, what else you got? What else you got? And it, what it does is it stops, oh, this little nugget that I brought you in here to talk about, it's in the trash. Let's move. Let's keep moving. Let's go. We're not going to make something work that you don't have. What else you got? And then the, the humiliation of having someone like open the oven and look at your cake before it's cooking, you know, I mean, Woodward's like, well, we have this thing, but it's not confirmed and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's you as a journalist, when I'm listening to him describe what they know in their heart, but they haven't been able to prove you're like, Oh my God, he's going to rip them a new one. He doesn't have it. (laughs) And all they have is a feeling at that point, really. And, and just the, uh, I can't get, I can't get enough of that description you know, someone looking at something you're cooking, but it's even earlier than that. It's like, it's like having the ingredients on the table and going, okay, well, I imagine that these ingredients will make this delicious thing. And you're like, no, what else you got? But that's the whole, that the whole point of this story. And I guess the, that kind of level of exhaustive reporting is like, that's precisely what our readers are going to say. Like they're going to read it and go, what? Okay. So if that, that is that, then what else? Because then there's the follow-up. It's like, what is what is going to follow? What further context is going to happen? Who else is implicated? All those questions. And it's such a like, it's super clever. It's super smart because it's grinding them in that way that like I, I smile so much sitting on the other end of these Skype or Zoom calls or face-to-face, you know, if we ever get to do a face-to-face podcast recording again in the universe. Um, but but, but um I love looking at former journalists like yourself just go, oh, my God, like the shame comes yeah. on your face. Like, oh, I, ca- I can't, I can't. The, uh, the empathy, I don't know about you, there's some shows like, you know, I think of like The British Office, which is so cringeworthy and embarrassing that I can't even look at it when it's happening. Like I have to look at it through like just like one finger on the couch and it's that the, this is almost that moment for these guys. But I also just relish him too much so you, you can you just can't take your eyes off of him. And it remind it makes me think of your. By the way, now you're like, okay, I guess you have watched it a couple of times. Earlier in the movie, when Woodward's taking notes, he's, he's trying to find out more about Howard Hunt, and he we we get to see those great shots of his handwritten notes, which are so accurate and beautifully done, like a reporter would do them. Um, and he gets this one woman on the phone, and all he writes is sounds nervous, yes, and underlined it. It's that type of thing. Like, what is? I mean. He knows he's got something. He yes. just doesn't have it yet. And the fear that he'd be called on the carpet, like, what do you, what have you actually confirmed? Nothing really, but <laughs> I mean, but he's got a notebook full of seems nervous, said that he was innocent of the Watergate break-in, even though we never asked about the Watergate break-in. And then, you know, pretty soon he goes, to, it, when he talks to Deep Throat, he says, we have pieces of the puzzle. We just don't, we can't see the whole thing. Mm. 
and and it's that that wonderful wonderful scene with Dolberg that that breaks that feels like a watershed moment for the whole movie and so when that Dolberg scene breaks down and it all happens it's like here's some final momentum here's the focus and this is a cold bucket of ice water on that it's like okay whoosh, wake up this is not the end this is just the beginning yeah. there's so much more and if you're being deflected and we're fighting it away there's other things that are more important to this paper like Nixon being guaranteed for the nomination and all of the turmoil that's happening in, in, in the democratic party and all that other stuff is seeming to overwhelm everything that they're discussing. It's like, no, you've got to, you've got to find some rock solid stuff. And then it comes down to this, you know, it's, we're leading in, we're casting off into the grind of what makes this, you know, beautiful, beautiful movie. So, so great is shoe leather. It's boring car rides. It's doors slammed in the face it's uh, it's you know, uh, powwows at McDonald's to try and sort of re-strategize about what's not working. It's 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 such a great you know at the hour. It's like all right, get back to it. Still got a lot to go. Yeah, and they're perfect. How perfectly they complement one another as characters, Bernstein and Woodward, Woodward and Bernstein. But in the beginning of my minute that you allocated me, you'll see that um, Carl Bernstein has a sort of amused expression on his face. He likes. He likes seeing, you know, his boss get chewed out by the real boss. He and does. He's, he's lovingly detached from what's going on. But Bob Woodward knows he senses the danger. And his face drops and he gets up to the couch and he starts pacing. He already knows that Bradley knows he doesn't have it. Yes. And he's ready to almost walk out. He's like almost ready to walk out the door. Like... If I'm going to get chewed out, I just want to, I don't want to have to get up off this really low couch. <laughs> it's a bit of a power move. It's like really low, comfortable couch. Bradley's got his feet up on the desk, this high desk. And he's like, oh, I'm going to just walk out of the room now. I, I don't really want to, I don't really want to face the music, so to speak. I don't want to get chewed out here. It's, it's nowhere near as fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's great. I also just, love seeing them. You can see the entire newsroom, which means the entire newsroom can see them in that fishbowl office oh. and everyone else they're getting chewed out. Everyone. And you just reminded me that, and I hadn't thought about it, but it's like you've worked in corporate, people have worked in corporate offices or journalistic offices and stuff like that. And having these open plans where there's just very few closed off offices, which feels really yeah. contemporary. I think that's one of the things you talked about is how it doesn't age because so many modern offices loathe the concept of open, open spaces like the, you know, that opens, you know, whatever it's called, the open planning. Um, and especially now in the time of COVID people are like, why didn't we keep it like mad men and just keep people in their own individual offices where they can't breathe on other people or, you know, touch the same cutlery or go to the same kitchen. Um, but I think journalists and, 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 papers really launched this kind of concept of like open planning because of the collaborative nature of everything that's happening. So it feels really like that, but you just said it is I've watched plenty of people be marched into the boss's office at different, a variety of jobs I've been in and gone like, Oh God, I do not want to be them right now. I do not want to be that person that's getting chewed out right now in that office. And it's just something for us to imagine that all the other journos are kind of like quietly going, Oh, there's Woodstein going to get chewed out by Bradley because they haven't got anything or uh, must, must, must be just so incredible. And then the other thing that I love about this scene, which run, rings true from my experience, which is um, 
if you just look at the physicality of the scene, you have these two guys, as you said, on a low couch behind their editor who's sitting on a chair across from the desk. Bradley is a couple inches higher than everyone. Like his eye line, he looks down at them. Yes. Um, and what also tells me is that before my minute started, there was a moment when they walked in and Bradley said, sit down. Yes. They didn't, there are no chairs around the desk for them. They're supposed to sit in the back and let Howard talk about their reporting to him. I mean, again, it's that structure and that's why newsrooms used to work so well. Um, maybe they still do, but, um, just the, everyone's role was exquisitely clear. Yes. Yeah. You, yeah. He, here's your role at the end. This person, this editor, like the chew out is going to be f- far more for Howard, as you said, like, I'm going to talk to you feel like Carl wants to say something, you know, when Carl walks in, he can't wait to interact with Bradley. Whereas Woodward with his paper and his notes in his hand, that's what I love. The difference is Carl like comes in lounging and the difference between, and and we'll be holding a cigarette. So he gets his like cigarette ash on the couch at one point is like with, Woodward, he's like, he's got all of his notes. He's like, I'm ready. Just in case Bradley asks a question, I'm going to, I'm going to have the note. I'm going to have the date. I'm going to have the time. And, and that's the other thing about watching how these guys and these interactions grow organically is that later they're having a conversation, walking around Bradley's office and they're equals. They're all at the same height. They're all talking. But right now, firstly, it's like, I'll come out of my office to your desks and I'll put my feet up, and that's my power move. Now, this- on my way out the door, he's going out for the night. He's leaving for the night. Yeah, so it's like- really just a flyby. <laughs> yeah, it's a flyby. Yeah, and he's all dressed up, and now come into the office, sit here, participate. If you guys are doing this big story, you guys are going to get the, I guess, get the the hierarchically kind of good inclusion, you know, inclusive thing of like, you can come into my office and we can discuss this story, but I'm not doing it just with you. Your editors who are, whose butts are on the line for this story are going to be included. Um, and then ultimately later on when it, when it evolves, it, it keeps going. But I, I just, just that tiny power move of like how smart Alan Pakula is and how smart Gordon Willis is to just set him up with the eye line going down. Like it's just, even if it wasn't the reality or if it's that slight bit of Hollywood, you know, that sort of fanciful thing, let's just give him just a couple of centimeters. So he's just that whisker higher than everyone in the room. It's just so smart how it's staged because it's, yeah, I just, I don't, I don't know. Little touches like that just make me so happy when I'm watching a movie like this. Cause when you scrutinize the living daylights out of it, as I have want to do, they're the things that age the best. And, um, you talked about the quick cuts and the editing, which is so true because this movie has such fantastic, luxurious, long shots. But what they don't do, and I love that they don't, like the sort of rookie move is to have a receptionist keep popping her head in and saying, you know, Mr. Bradley, there's a book on line three and, oh, your wife's on line four. They don't. So in a way, even though there are quick cuts, the tension just gets to keep building in this scene. Yes. You don't have it. My ass is hanging out to dry with my dinner table, you know, my dinner party set. What do you have? You still don't have it. You better get some luck. You you know, leave. <laughs> uh, but I love that there's no leave. It's like, we haven't any luck yet. Get some. Yeah. And then he's like, they're looking around just like completely, you know, deer in headlights. He's like, 
Now get out. I don't, I'm not even going to say it. Just yeah. I was talking about luck last night with my husband, who was a journalist for 18 years at the LA Times, and he's a great reporter. I guess you could say he was. He's a TV writer and producer now. But um, he, I said, luck. Do you really think it's luck? He said, Oh my gosh, yeah. And he said, Look, I had just started. He just told this little story. His name's Scott Bold, where he had just come from the paper where we met in South Florida got hired at the LA Times just before the Gore-Bush recount. And so he's been at the paper three months in the LA Times, and the recount happens in the capital of Florida called Tallahassee. He had worked in Tallahassee for years, and they send him. And the guy counting the chads on the paper ballots is one of his most trusted longtime sources, who he spent hours with years previously drinking with and working. And he's like, I mean, that was luck. Like, I knew that guy. And he gave me this, you know. And I was like, was it luck or was it a great editor that said, this 29-year-old guy just came from years in Florida. We should send him, even though he's not maybe an established national political reporter. So is it luck? Is it good editing? Is it a mixture of both? I don't know. Yeah, I think I think always the answer is kind of, it ends up being both. Because you could squander luck it's like no. Right. It's like knowing that you've got the opportunity for luck. It's like well, there's that great quote. It's like you know, like like luck is the thing that happens after good preparation. It's just like that 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 will one of us, an outsider going down to Florida, even if it's a great political reporter, has to know the lay of the land. If you know a guy is from Tallahassee, and he's been there for five years before, and clearly was good enough to like work and then earn his place in the LA Times. There's, there's a very good chance. There's a good chance that you send that guy back down there and things are going to happen. But when you say the guy who's recounting is his most trusted source, that's luck. Like you, even as an editor, can't know that. Like, like with Bradley in this scene, it perfectly announces, right? Like, it's like, you could never have imagined that that's what's going to happen. You're like, oh, I need to talk to this guy. Are, Are you serious? Like, I can imagine your husband's not like, you mean, you want me to talk to that guy? Oh, fine. Not like not worry. I know him. And, and just to bring it back to our little jewel of a movie that we're talking about is that Woodward's source, luck or not, is Deep Throat. Bernstein's source is some guy at the phone company. Yeah. <laughs> so, so is it luck or is it talent and luck? You know. So or, or an FBI like an an underling at the FBI who he's who Bernstein has made so blood red mad throughout this movie that by the end of it, he's like threatening physical violence. It's like yeah. Carl has got that, he's got that quality, but he does, you know, after using his charm to get in the door with the bookkeeper and drink 25,000 cups of coffee, you know, that, you know, he gets, he gets his own moment to extract some of the most, yeah. you know, dynamic and, important information from a source in the history of this story. Like, you know, the bookkeeper deep throat gives them all the context, but the bookkeeper is like, make, you know, calls out every one of those individuals who are in that slush fund doing really dirty deeds who ultimately all get indicted later on. I was also thinking rewatching that scene last night. Um, I'm always impressed and reminded how lean and taut this film is. And nothing is wasted. And there are no, really no cute asides. There are no what we call runners in television or even film. The smaller, lighter stories. Um, You know, and I feel like 
gosh, if this film were written today, you'd have some like quirky, charming, funny little side thing of like, you know, here, have some Skittles. They're good for you, but only eat the orange ones. And I don't, we, I don't know why we've done that. I think there's this um, impulse that somehow it humanizes or makes them quirky and special. And in fact, what I love about this movie is you learn about these characters when they are in the soup together dealing with this problem, period. Nothing else matters. No, I, and I totally agree. It's, and there's an upcoming episode that actually coincides with that Jay and Alexander minute. Um, John Borson, who is Alan Pakula's assistant, thank you to Kenny Turin um, uh, for linking us up. He's coming on the show to talk about what it was like to work next to Mr. Pakula. And okay, wait, wait, hold on, because now I have to stalk him. Where where does he live? <laughs> well, you can listen to that episode. It's episode seventy six, but we can talk about that off air just so that people don't uh, find that out. But John. Wait, you don't want to say his address? Um, no, his not not his, not his email address or his phone number or anything like that. No, he he's so um, – one of the things he told me is – and you would know this, this is sort of getting into the, the how the sausage is made of films and TV is he said the assembly cut of the movie, the editor, uh, the editor had instinctively taken a lot of the air. So what in a lot of oh. these scenes is great is that the air and the spaces and the gaps – between people talking, between how things had happened. And when Pakula was on the set, he was doing that. He wanted the air. He wanted the space. He wanted the time. He wanted that. And so when they, they actually cut it, they said it was the weirdest thing, that the movie felt longer. And it felt like you didn't know these people. And it felt like you weren't getting the vibe. And they said, no, we don't like it. So they went back and did another assembly cut where all the – all the takes, like they, they weren't, there was no speed in the editing. Everything slowed down. The shot length increased and they just like let it all hang out. And they said when that happened, the movie felt faster and it felt like that energy that it has now. It was like, oh, those bits are so essential. And like that was in their mind, keeping the spaces, making the time for these characters to actually grow, bloom. And in these, even in this, even in this scene, which is really dynamic editorially and there's a lot of tete-a-tete and even rat-a-tat with the, t- the pen the the gaps at the end for those reaction shots where no one's saying anything and there's just this yawning thing that was by it's design perfect. yeah 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 well first of all I'm, my mind's blown because i've never heard that story so i'm now i'm <laughs> like 10 years but um yeah it's just constant tension it's never it never stops and you don't need to necessarily have that like and and I think you you would know like this what's actually nice and luxurious sometimes about TV is when when you get a character who doesn't need to you know they're not like clawing for airtime in a film that they can have the luxury of just you know pottering around doing something you know whether it's like Breaking Bad whether you're making meth you know whether you just you know like whether it's someone just doing something at home and it just takes its time to do it like you get to know a character on certain meticulous activities, the way they pick their kids up from school, you know, the way they interact with a family member and giving it all the time to do that, the way they frustrating, you know, Tony Soprano cleaning his pool. Like there's, you learn more about the way that James Gandolfini frustratingly cleans a pool, like 
tells you so much about Tony Soprano that maybe you never even would have understood if you didn't have that time. So it's, yeah, that's that real inverse instinct of like, let's cut it fast. Let's be like a Peckinpah or a Edgar Wright or, you know, do, 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 like cut it really quickly. But this is like, no, we're going to just, we're going to luxuriate in these moments and actually it has the inverse effect. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I felt the same way. Um, we just binged The Leftovers on HBO, which we had never seen yes. back in our pre-pandemic yeah. life. And man, just watching Justin Theroux like walk to his car, mm. I don't know, like, oh my God, what's going to happen? <laughs> but then also just his choices, you know? Is he is he like one of those guys who like left the hood of his car and is like singing to himself? No, he's dead fucking serious, you know? So I, I'm agreeing with you and, and thinking about applying that, you know, that those editing decisions to, to, to films and works I really love. Well, I really love talking to you despite the pandemic, despite all of the chaos in the world. I love coming back to this movie with you. It's a real treat to talk to you, Dana. Same here. You just indulge my geekiest. <laughs> right. And stay safe. Yes, I will. You too. And, uh, take care and hopefully, uh, all the productions that are now looking like they're beginning to open back up uh, uh, will will accelerate and you I probably won't get a chance to talk to you before the end of this thing because you're going to be so goddamn busy, but I will uh, harass you enough on Twitter to make that happen, I think. And uh, I'm so glad that I get to indulge your geekier side every time. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, be well. You too. Take care. You're the best. Dana Calver, everyone. An absolute sweetheart a gem who loves this movie and I love just sometimes luxuriating as uh, she said, talking about this movie's ability to luxuriate in the moment. I like to luxuriate in just flat out geekery occasionally uh, with this one and some really great stuff um, in there from Dana. Dana is wonderful. You can find her on Twitter at Dana S Calvo. If you are in the States, you can check out her terrific show, Good Girls Revolt. Um, you can also check out a whole, I mean, her IMDb is scary. Like there's so many shows that she's been a showrunner or contributed to. So you can check out all that stuff. If you just want to do a quick IMDb, you can find everything and a stack of it is available on video on demand. So I would strongly recommend that. Um, Dana, thank you as always for being a part of the show. Um, you're such a huge advocate for it and I appreciate you very much. Guys, speaking of appreciate, I appreciate all of you listening. Thank you so much for being here. We are an hour, an hour into this movie and we are streaming through um, to the uh, to the end. It is, you know, the, the first hour seems to be the hardest and then it just starts to get away from you. If you want to find out more about the show, oneheatminute.com, you can click through and see all of our guests and see everything that's happening there or if you can follow the show on Twitter at ATPMPod on the Twitter sphere. Um, I am, of course, your host, Blake Howard. You can find me on Twitter at oneblakeminute.com and if you do have a bit of uh, spare cash, some uh, money coming through and you want to either donate as a one-off or regularly to the show, would really appreciate you just clicking the link on the description to do that. Um, if you can't, the best thing you can do, share. Find some other geeks who are out there, some Watergate geeks, some fans of movies um, who want to hear about the show and uh, give it to them, text it to them, share it with them. Um, we appreciate you sharing. We appreciate you. We'll catch you on another episode today. There is another episode. If you're still listening, you madman, there's another episode today. So.